1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13. Paul has been speaking to us about the gifts of the Spirit. And last week, uh, we went into a bird's eye view of the gifts of the Spirit mentioned there in 1 Corinthians 12. But his main purpose in speaking about those gifts was to speak about the fact that all those gifts come from the same source. They come from the Holy Spirit. And so if that's the case, and if God is the one working in between all those gifts, then what should happen is there should be unity when they're exercised. There should not be divisions in the church. And if in the church in Corinth, there was quite a few divisions. There was all kinds of problems. They were quarreling over things that mature Christians should not be quarreling about. And so though they had all the gifts that God had given them and they were exercising them, um, there were some problems. And the problem was is they had a source problem. They had a heart problem. And so as Paul deals with these gifts and speaks about them, he's speaking about them to tell them, hey, these gifts were given to you to bless one another, to build one another up, to encourage one another in the faith. And so Paul transitions into 1 Corinthians 13, a passage that we're all more than likely familiar with. Even if you didn't grow up in church, if you ever went to a wedding, or if you ever stepped into a bathroom of somebody that had this, you know, the, the little thing that says what love is, um, you've seen these phrases. Uh, when I was growing up, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, but we had these verses in our bathroom. I remember reading them. They were right next to the one that said, you know, uh, if you ever think that you were alone and you only saw footprints in the stand, the, the one where well, those, that was the time that God was carrying you, it was right next to that one. And so these are things that are well woven into our culture. But do we really know what they mean? Do we really know what it implies? And so Paul, his his desire was to question the motives of the Corinthian believers. He says, God's given you these gifts and you're exercising them and they're causing problems, not unity. So let's get to the source of the problem. Let's see if there's a source issue. And so Paul knows what it's like to have his own motives questioned. And he had had his motives questioned by this very church because in the second book of Corinthians, they questioned whether or not he was doing things for the right reason. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if you turn to the right with me, he actually explains to them, even though he doesn't have to, he explains to them what his motives are for serving the Lord. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, he says this about himself and those who are with him. He says, The love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So our motive ought to be not because I love God, but because he first loved me, I serve him as an overflow of my relationship, recognizing all that he's done for me. And Paul said, I'm not serving you because you're lovable. I'm not writing to you because you deserve it. I'm not doing any of these things because of the way it will be received. I'm doing it out of the love that Christ has shown me. I'm trying to give that back to you. And so since I'm doing it out of that reason, my love looks different than yours does. And so we're going to look at today what the love of God looks like that's different. But what I want to point out is the love of Christ, that word compelled him, means constrained. 
I heard one guy write it this way. He said, the love of Christ has gripped me so tightly that I cannot help but love who he loves. The idea of a person being constrained or squeezed into a vice, but not unwillingly, willingly saying, Lord, constrain me, propel me in the direction that you want me to go. And so the love of Christ constrained, compelled, and held Paul fast to the task of living for Jesus, the one who died for all. So Paul was other-centered, but the source, the reason that he was other-centered was because his Savior, the one he served, was others-centered. It wasn't because Paul was this great guy. If you read the, the account in Acts about who Paul really was before Jesus, you go, that guy, was, he was no good. He was very religious, but it made him an angry, disruptive, hurtful person. And so in verse 1 through 3, Paul's challenging them. Remember, this is in the context of the unity in the church and the way that they're using the gifts that God's given them. Here, Paul is challenging them. I want you to examine yourselves and see what it is that motivates you to exercise the gifts that God's given you. So in verse 1 of chapter 13, he begins like this. He says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I've become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but I have not love, it profits me nothing. And so Paul says, I can do all these wonderful things that really aren't common in our day, you know, or in many cases, they are common. I mean, look at the list he gives here. Um, besides the first few verses, he says, though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor. How many people are there out there that are not Christians that will bestow all, the, they'll give up everything to feed the poor? Does that mean that they're a child of God? Does that mean they're going to go to heaven? No, I, anybody can do that. Everybody can do that. We all have goods, and if we just decided one day, you know what, I want to be a good person, I want to give all my goods to someone else so that they're not hungry anymore. But Paul says, I can do that, and, and it can profit me nothing, but I have not love. And so he says, what is your motive? A person can speak in tongues, he says, and this can be two different things. He can be gifted to learn a new language and go to a different country and share the gospel. Or he can be a person that has the gift of tongues, can exercise it. But if I don't have love, he says, um, then it doesn't profit me anything. He says a person can exercise the gift of prophecy. They can understand everything that's in the Bible. They can know all about it. Every last minutia of detail that God's put in his word, they can know all of it. But if they don't have any love, then it doesn't profit them or those that hear them. A person can know all the truths that are in the Bible and have faith that can say to one mountain, hey, be moved over there. We can look over at the biggest mountain in our valley and say, hey, I've got faith that God can move it, and he can move it. But even if a person was able to do that, but they didn't have the love of God, it doesn't profit anyone anything. It's just, just another thing that happened. A person can have a lot monetarily or earthly goods and be willing to give them to others at the expense of themselves. But if they don't have love, then it's nothing. A person can even be willing to be martyred 
for a cause. But if they don't have love, it's not worth anything to them. But if none of these things are motivated by love, they will not profit the person who has done them. Let me ask you to turn to the book of Revelation in chapter 2. Because there, the Apostle John is getting a vision from the Lord. And this, uh, the book of Revelation is called Revelation. It's singular, not Revelations. A lot of people don't like to touch the book of Revelation because it's, it's too much. There's a lot of visions in there. But the main purpose of the book of Revelation is, is, is the singular revelation, the revealing. That's what apocalypse means. The revealing of Jesus Christ in his glorified state. And we see several different uh, breakdowns in the book of Revelation. I'm listening to J. Vernon McGee teach it right now. He said, now, friend, the book of Revelation, you know, and he goes on, and I just, I listened to it on the way to work. But I was thinking about this very passage in Revelation chapter 2, because in there, he speaks to seven different churches. But this morning, I want to read from chapter 2, verse 1 through 7, because there he speaks to a a pretty well-known church, He speaks to a thriving church, but he has one thing against them. So let's read it. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. He says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now we won't get into that this morning, but the one speaking, if you've got a Bible with red letters, it's Jesus. And he's telling John, I want you to write this down and I want you to send this letter to the church at Ephesus. And this is what he said to them. He says, verse 2, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. You've tested those who say they're apostles and are not and have found them to be liars. You have persevered and have patience and have labored, excuse me, not labored, labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you. So look at all these things that they're doing. They're laboring for the Lord. They're shunning profane or false doctrine. They're, they know the difference between what's true and what's false. They're, they're working for the name's sake. They have patience instituted in how they're, they're serving. They're doing all these good works, but here's what he says. Nevertheless, verse 4, I have this against you, that you've left your first love. You're doing all of these things, but you left me. He was their first love. You're doing lots of stuff for me, but that's become number one priority instead of your relationship with me. Sometimes we get so caught up in doing things for God that we leave him to go do them. And what he said in Matthew chapter 28, as he says, I want you to go and do these things. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. However God's doing that in your life, I hope that that is something that's happening. But he said, while you do that, the promise is, is that I'm going to go with you. We don't lose our first love. We don't lose him. We're the ones that are lost when he finds us. But here's the deal people quote this verse all the time. They say, well, they, le- they lost their first love. No, they didn't. They walked away from him. Jesus doesn't leave. We do. He, he's faithful and true. He never leaves. He will never leave nor forsake us. He's promised to be with us, but sometimes we go off on a tangent and we walk away from him. And so what Paul's saying to the Corinthian church is what he's saying to the Ephesian church. He's saying, look, 
there's all this good stuff going on, but and you see all the division that's happening while it's going on. The reason there's division is because I'm not in your midst, because I'm not the one that's compelling you to do what you're doing. You're going off and using those gifts on your own. So what is your motive? What motivates you? What gives you the, the want to do what you're doing? Are you doing it out of duty or are you doing it out of an overflow? You want to serve God because you love him so much, because you've been stirring up your affections for him as you spend time with him. And I have to confess to you this week, the Lord had to make me a little bit sick to see that I was doing things because I ought to rather than I wanted to. And I felt horrible yesterday, but just to go sit in my office and spend time studying this passage was just, it was a breath of fresh air because I got back to my first love. I went back and spent time with him, and that caused me to see things a little bit differently. And I say that because on Friday night, Kelly went somewhere, and she was having a girl's night. There's a lady from Parkland that's getting married, and so they had a girl's night to celebrate all that's going on in her life. And while she was gone, I was watching Lucy. Well, it's bath night. And uh, she made pizza for us before we left, but I'm going to go give Lucy a bath. Well, Lucy wanted to do the opposite of everything I wanted her to do. So I got frustrated. I got a little tense. I got a little upset. And every time it was just like, wow, I really don't love like the Lord does. I stink at this. And I'd been reading this passage, so I was just convicted. I was miserable. Going, man, this is not the love of God being squeezed out of me right now. This is like me. And it don't look good. And so Jesus says to them, I know your works, your labor, your patience, your hatred for those who are bent on evil. You've labored for my name's sake, but even though you're doing good in these areas, I have this against you. It doesn't profit you anything because you've left me. So how does he instruct them to fix it? Well, in Revelation there, he says in verse 5, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So he says, remember. Remember where you came from. Remember what it was when you first got saved. You weren't really studying or doing anything for me just because you were spending time with me. You were just enamored with the fact that I had a relationship with Jesus. And you spent time, you wanted to read your word, you, you wanted to do all these things because you loved him. He says, remember where you have fallen from, repent and return. Remember, repent, return. And then he says, if you'll do that, things will change. That's where it starts. The source needs to be cleansed so that the fruits can be clean as well. And so he says, this is how we can change. When you go back to the first work, spending time with Jesus, it changes your motive. Everything in your life will change if the source from which everything flows from your life will change as well. So I say that because when I'm motivated by my own ambitions, whatever they might be, and I've got them just like everybody else, the smell of what I do will unmistakably be a bad odor. It will not be the aroma of Christ coming from my life. It'll be the aroma of me. It'll be the sweat of my brow. It will stink. You know, and in comparison to the love of God, my love smells like a dumpster. Not like a clean new one, like the one that sits there outside of the cafeteria at the school. It gets rotten. It gets sour. But the love of God is just this fresh aroma. It's something that the world's not used to smelling. It's not, st it's not a stench at all. It's just, it's refreshing. It's like Kelly came in yesterday from walking outside and she just smelled like fresh air. I'd been inside all day. 
you know, and, and that's what it smells like, the love of God. So what's the difference between the love that I give and the love that God gives? What difference does it make when I'm motivated by God's love? Well, he shows us. How can I tell if it's my love or if it's God's love? Because we kind of get twisted around. So if you're like me, I think of like a dipstick in a car. You know, how do I know if there's enough oil in the engine? I pull the dipstick out and I check the level. And if the level's between the lines, I'm good. And if it's below, it's a problem. You know, you're going to have issues with the motor later. And so the Lord gives us a dipstick to test to see whether our love is flowing from the Lord or if it's flowing from ourselves. And so in 1 Corinthians 13, again in verse 4, he continues and he describes it. Before I start there, though, I need to define love. Here we are at the beginning of February. We celebrate uh, Valentine's Day, the holiday of love. I mean, we went to Walmart the other day. It looked like Valentine's Day had thrown up. It was everywhere. There are more red balloons in the store than I've ever seen anywhere in my life. And I don't know when they started. They probably started about Christmas, right? Because usually the holidays kind of overlap. But, but I was thinking about that. I was like, we don't really know what love is. You know, we, we ha- are confused about it because it's twisted. It used to mean one thing, and now it means another. And in our language, even more, it gets watered down. I can say, I love, my, I love this bacon cheeseburger, and I can say, I love my wife in the same sentence. It's the same word, but it means something different, right? Hopefully. If I love bacon cheeseburgers as much as I love my wife, there's a problem. I've left my first love, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so so what is love what is love we i think we need to be reprogrammed don't you because we we get told what love is and it's it's many different things to many different people but here's the words that they had in that day in the corinthians day to describe love the first one is eros e-r-o-s it described as we might guess from the word itself erotic love sexual love physical love that's eros so is that the kind of love that god's trying to explain to us we'll see then there's the second one storge spelled s-t-o-r-g-e it refers to family love i love my daughter that's family love and that's a little different than (laughs) it's a lot different than eros and it's totally different than philia which is where we get the word Philadelphia, and they call that what? The city of brotherly love. So that's a brotherly love. And philia is described as uh, brotherly friendship and affection. It's the love of deep friendship and partnership. There's a give and take. It might be described as the highest love of which man can experience apart from God giving him more. You know, it's, it's when you walk into a store and somebody opens the door for you. And you walk in, you're like, hey. But if you don't say thank you, they might get a little upset with you. They're going to look at you and go, what a jerk. He didn't even say thank you. That's philia. Now, that's brotherly love, but it expects something, doesn't it? We, we see that around here all the time. Somebody stops to help you on the side of the road. Like, they won't be completely bummed out if you don't give them a, a five spot or something for helping them out. But they weren't really doing it just because they like you. They don't even know you. So what is the difference between eros, storge, and uh, philia. There's three different types, right? Well, there's another word that when Jesus came on the scene and his believers, his disciples started loving on people, it, 
none of those worked. So they literally had to come up with a word, and the word is agape. Agape is a love that loves without changing. It's a self-giving love that gives without demanding or expecting repayment. It is love so great that it can be given to the unlovable or unappealing, those who are not lovable. God demonstrated his love in that while we were yet sinning against him, Christ died for us. He didn't die for us because we were lovable. He died for us because he chose to. That's agape. So agape love gives and loves because it wants to. It does not demand or expect repayment from the love given. It gives because it loves. It does not love in order to receive. That's totally different than what I have to offer. And then he says, uh, this guy I'm reading, uh, Alan Redpath wrote this. We get our English word agony from agape. Agape love is agonizing love. Now, we don't like to think about it that way, but love is hard. Real love, undeserved love is hard to give. It costs everybody that loves, it costs them. It means the actual absorption of our being in one great passion. Now, it can't be said that agape love can be only God's love because in uh, John chapter 3, verse 19, and 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, it says that the world, men, they agape sin and the world. They don't want God because they love sin. They love the darkness instead of the light. And so we can absorb ourselves in loving the world and the things of the world. But God's love, it can be defined as sacrificial, giving, absorbing kind of love. The word has little to do with emotion, which is what we kind of get the idea is, I love you. And there's all this emotion, especially if you see teenagers in a relationship. They, they haven't come to the face-to-face with the reality that those emotions, though very real, they'll fade. They'll, the, over time, they're going to go away. And then what? If you're only loving someone because you like the way they look, they're going to they're look different. But agape love says, I love you no matter what. No matter what changes outwardly, no matter how you treat me, I'm going to love you. That's what agape says. So we can read this chapter and think that Paul's saying that if we are unfriendly, then our lives mean nothing. But agape isn't really friendliness. It's self-denial for the sake of another. And so in Psalm chapter 34, verse 8, the psalmist invites those who are listening. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now let me ask you, how is the world to taste and see that the Lord is good unless they can taste the fruit that comes from our life. Unless there's something different about us. If you will love people like Jesus loves you, people are going to get a little glimpse of that. They're going to taste it. And they're going to want to know where that comes from. Because it's unlike anything else in this entire world. It's not something that world has to offer. And so in verse 8 through 10, God reveals himself to the world through the church, through the gifts of the Spirit. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to jump ahead. We're going to read verse 4 through 8, I promise. He says this in verse 4. Love suffers long and is kind. Now that word in some of your translations might say love is patient. Now patience is a work of suffering. Whether, you know, like if you've ever experienced or had to be patient with somebody, it, it is agonizing at times. You know? um, but that's the reality. Love suffers long. It's willing to and it's kind. Love does not envy It does not parade itself. It's not looking for someone to praise it for being there. It's not doing it for those reasons. 
It's not puffed up. It doesn't boast. It's not behaving rudely. It does not seek its own good. Love is not provoked. Some of the translations say it's not easily provoked, but that's not in the original Greek. The word is it's not provoked at all. It's not able to be agitated and, and stopped by someone you know, doing something unfavorable. It thinks no evil. There's one to struggle with, right? We always look at people's motives and we, go, we always think the worst. But God's love doesn't do that. He, he assumes the best out of us. He sees potential and so he, does, he thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. In other words, love carries all things, believes all things, and hopes all things. Love endures all things. It, it makes it through. Love never fails. And I like that verse because where it says love never fails, it means love never ceases. Love never stops. It doesn't give up. We're going to sing that song at the end. Your love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on me. And that's something that we, you, you can't tell people enough until they, they experience the agape love of the Lord because no one in this world never gives up on you. We've all been given up on by someone that we really love, that we really care about. They've, they've said, I'm done. I've been guilty of that. I've said the phrase, I'm done. And, and that's not the love of God. That's the flesh. That's the way the world loves. It's something expecting a return. That Jesus actually said, he said, you know, if you have a feast, don't invite those who can pay you back. Invite people that can't pay you back. Because then, when you have that feast, and they can't pay you back, your reward will not be on this earth, it will be in heaven. That's agape love. And so here we are, he says in verse 8, love never fails. But here we are back in the context, he's talking about spiritual gifts. So he says, for now... uh, (laughs) Love, love never fails. God's love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away with. And so he gives... Um, he reveals himself to the world through the gifts of the Spirit. He uses us to edify one another by having a specific gift given to us to minister to one another in the church and to share the gospel with those who are outside the church. He says at this point, that's how he speaks through us and to us. He, he uses those gifts. But when Jesus returns, we won't need those anymore. And many, uh, we call them cessationists, they don't believe that the gifts of the Spirit are at work in the church today. They believe that they faded out during the time of the apostles. But what the Bible clearly says right here is not so much when Jesus comes the first time, because when he left, he sent the Holy Spirit to minister in the church. And Paul wouldn't be writing any of this to the church in the Corinthians had there been no need for the teaching. And so I ask those who believe that, that the gifts are over, Well, if you believe that, if that's the case, then why did Paul write it? Because the Corinthians were after the time of the apostles. You know, those who followed after them. We still have it preserved in our our Bibles here. So whether there is knowledge, whether there is gift of prophecy, that will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. We don't see the big picture yet. God's kind of pouring through us, which we're kind of leaky vessels, 
and some of it gets there. It's kind of like this. God gives us the gifts to be the light to the world through us, okay? But in your house, at nighttime, when there's no sunlight, you turn on a lamp in each room. If you're in there, you want to be able to see what you're doing, you click on the light. And then after the light goes off, or excuse me, when the sun comes up in the morning, you don't need that lamp anymore. When Jesus gets here, we won't need to turn on that little lamp. We won't need to get the brightest bulb. He will be here. He'll be in our presence, and, and he'll shine his light in our lives. Um, and so the gifts of the Spirit are like a light in your kitchen or living room or bedroom. When the sun comes up during the day and you experience light itself, you no longer need a light to help you see much in the same way, when we're in the very presence of God, we will know him just as we are also known, and there will be no more need for the gifts of the Spirit in order to taste and see the Lord's goodness. He will be present with us personally. But then he says in verse 12, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. He's talking about the temporary nature of the gifts and the permanent nature of the love of God. And then another example he gives, he says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we shall see face to face. And I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. So when we're in the presence of the Lord, he will be there. We won't have to see through a reflection through someone's life. And in the Corinthian church, in their town, they were making mirrors. Except they didn't have the mirrors we do. They had these brass big pieces of metal that they would polish and buff until they were super shiny. And it was like a really clean dish. You look at it and you would see a reflection. But it wasn't like the mirrors that we have where we look and we're like, I can see everything. We've even got the ones that are kind of concave and you look at it and you can see like through your pores. They're too good. And then you got the vanity lights. But in their day, they had mirrors that when you looked at them, you kind of saw what was going on and you could fix the obvious stuff. But when we're in the presence of the Lord... We will no longer need a mirror. We'll see ourselves for who we really are. We'll be revealed for all that things ever were. Even our motives, they'll be pierced through. We'll know why we did what we did. And I believe that when we're in the presence of the Lord, it'll be so overwhelming that that's why we will be crying. It says that Jesus will wipe away every tear. I don't think it's going to be because we died. I don't think it's going to be because now we get to see those who passed on before us. I think it's going to be because we, for our whole lives, struggled with the reality of God, even though we knew he existed. And we kind of struggled between being tempted by the world and being drawn away by other distractions. And then when we see the Lord, we're going to go, I wasted so much time. What happened? I'm sorry, Lord. And there's going to be this conviction and there will be tears. God did so much for me and, and I barely even touched the edge of the iceberg. And there will be weeping. And the Lord's going to say, hey, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord for those of us who have served him. Because he's not going to look at it like we do. He's going to go, you tried to please me and there's grace. And you trusted in my son. He's not going to look at your good works versus your bad. Because if you come to God through Jesus Christ, he looks at his son. And he says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And you trusted him for your righteousness. And there was some fruit. And yes, there was some lost time and you wasted time on this and that. But I, I'm no longer concerned with that because now here you are with me. And I love that because though there's the conviction, there's the grace. 
There's the agape love right there when we're in the presence of the Lord. And so he closes out by saying this. Verse 13, and now abide. Now these things remain, is the word. Faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Let me tell you that faith will no longer be needed when we're in the presence of the Lord. Faith is not in something that we see. Faith is in the things that we don't see. Hebrews 11 says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes must believe that God exists and that he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Not his hand, not what he can do for us, but him. He's the prize. So we won't need faith anymore after he is here in our presence. But then he says, hope. And we don't hope in the things that we see. Those are the th- that's, that's the end of our hope. Here he is. He's returned. And we live in this life hoping that one day he will return to take his bride home with him to our destination. He will deliver us through this life by his spirit and he will have brought us through trial, tribulation, temptation, all of those things. That's what the Holy Spirit does. But then he says the greatest of these is love because the one thing that will not be over when we see him face to face will be love. A commentary guy, a, a pastor that I read his notes, he said this about this verse. The greatest of these is love. Love is greatest because it will continue, even grow in the eternal state. When we are in heaven, faith and hope will have fulfilled their purpose. They will have delivered us through this life and into our heavenly destination. We won't need faith when we see God face to face. We won't need to hope in the coming of Jesus once he comes. But we will always love the Lord and each other and grow in that love throughout eternity. That's what abides. That's what remains. I don't know what your motive is for why you do what you do in life. But what this passage tells me is that no matter what you do, it means nothing unless it is motivated by the love of God because that is all that will remain when everything else disappears. That's all that will matter when this life is over. So I want to close because as I was reading this passage, as I was finishing this, this study, I thought of a poem that I've heard in the past, but I had never read the whole thing. It's by a man by the name of C.T. Studd. He said this. It's kind of lengthy, but just hear it out. I should have put it up on the screen. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave, and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and its fears. Each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life twill soon be passed, 
Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep, in joy or sorrow thy word to keep, faithful and true whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, <clears throat> and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, "'Twas worth it all. Only one life twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. So let's pray. <clears throat> 